Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast was funded by the Welcome Trust and now listeners like you. We want to start featuring our supporters, and so each month we'll be introducing a patron of the month. This month's patron is Bob Reuter. Bob loves learning because it's the best way we have as individuals to adapt to an environment that our genes couldn't have prepared us for. Bob was trained as a cognitive scientist and now works in the field of learning and teaching research with future teachers. He works at University of Luxembourg. Bob wants to give a shout out to the University of Luxembourg because it's one of the youngest universities in the world and impressively is on his way to international excellence. You can meet Bob on his Meet the Scientist YouTube video, and we'll put a link to this in our show notes. And if you like our podcast and want to support our efforts to spread the science of learning, please check out our Patreon page, where we're posting exclusive content for our supporters. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes to show your support. So we are here in London at the Early Conference interviewing Michael Hobbes. So Michael, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, so I uh, was a teacher for, for eight years. I taught um, psychology and biology primarily uh, up to A-level in the UK. Uh, and uh, I also taught abroad uh, and then uh, had a few other jobs within schools, uh, one of which was to lead a sort of whole school research um, program into the evidence behind uh, the teaching of thinking skills and that was something that uh, got me very interested in reading educational research uh, and that was what led me eventually to knowing that I was going to be coming back to the UK applying for PhDs. So I'm now a PhD student at University College London and I study specifically uh, attention although I'm interested sort of generally in this sort of cognitive control uh, in, in students. Mostly I look at adolescents and secondary school age students and the sort of sorts of cognitive control that are important for educational success and I look at specifically attention and distraction in those age groups and, and try and relate that to, to education. Yeah, so you could just give us sort of just, you know, for the average person, I know there's there's a lot of different definitions of attention and we might think of attention in a lot of different ways. Yeah, so yeah. just give us a just sort of a brief overview of how you conceptualize those ideas. Sure. So attention often gets described sort of using uh, using metaphors, you know, so it's a spotlight or it's a filter or it's a glue or these sorts of things. But I think really the easiest way to, to think about uh, attention is is that there are kind of two two main ways that attention is, is is captured and affected and they're you know they're common sense really we we know about them um it, one of them is bottom-up ways which is something to do with the object that's capturing the attention so you know it could be the color or the brightness or the the movement of the the stimulus um it, you know it could be the fact that it's a uh, what we call a singleton so something that really stands out of the crowd because it's a totally different shape to all the other objects something like that and then there are also sort of top-down things that affect attention so things like your goals and your motivations and your interests or strategies you're using to to uh, to perform the, the task that you've got and both of those interact in producing this this thing that we call attention which which we know is is really important for education so if you could tell me a little bit about how the research on attention can be applied to the classroom maybe some of it's probably quite obvious and maybe some of it's not yeah um, I mean what, what what's actually quite interesting is is uh, how little uh, attention 
research has specifically been done on, on attention in, in the classroom and in classroom settings. There's been a little bit on very specific circumstances like uh, distraction during group work versus working as an individual. But, but actually we know very, very little about you know, what things are students distracted by in a classroom. We, we don't know. How often do they get distracted? We don't know. You know, do, is uh, is their home environment or versus the school environment? How do these affect their levels of distraction? Are they more distracted from one classroom to another? We we don't know any of these things. Um, what we do know is that attention is really important. So, uh, so for example, teacher ratings of of attention um, for for students when they're age five are very predictive of sort of future academic success many years later. But apart from that, really, we we know very little about it. And that, to me, is a bit strange because attention, there's a lot of reasons why I think attention is, is, is really important. Firstly, it's, it's that sort of gateway to cognition. So if, you know, if attention is the filter that selects what things go into your brain for further processing, uh, if that filter is missing things or if that filter is not working properly, then we can't go any further. That's just a complete roadblock. So there's no memory, there's no recall, there's no problem solving, there's no creativity, there's nothing. So so that, you know, it's important from that respect. It's important because we know it relates to educational outcomes, as I've said, although teacher ratings have potential problems. They can they can sometimes vary in terms of their reliability and uh, a fact I quite like to mention is that they can vary internationally. So teachers in Scotland uh, view inattentive behaviour more harshly than do teachers in England or Australia, which, which, which I quite like. I don't know what it tells us about Scotland or Scottish teachers. That's interesting. And, and the other the other sort of thing just to, just to throw in there is, is just through some extra research that we've done, um, being distracted, we found tends to be related to, to to being unhappy. I think there are emotional effects as well as as well as academic effects of this. That um, there's a there's a there's a much wider picture here than just you know how well kids will do on a test if they're distracted. Being distracted is not pleasant. We, we know that that's something that we all experience. We want to focus on something and something pulls our attention away. That's not a pleasant experience. Um, so so all of these things come together, and that's to me what makes it really surprising that there, there isn't that much research actually out there that's looking at attention in school classrooms specifically. So your main goal is to, to try to fill in some of that what looks like a gaping gap. <laughs> yeah, yeah to, do, uh, to fill in a tiny part of that gaping gap yeah. And yeah well it takes a long time yeah, yeah. so so you just presented um, some of your work. We actually we were just watching watching you present some of your work. Um, <laughs> no it was, it was quite good but I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, explain a little bit about that it's a little bit harder um, in this context because you don't have the visuals yeah. there but we'll have we'll put some of those things into the show notes for you and mm-hmm. um, so so my uh, project that I was presenting just now was one that's trying to take uh, some of the work that's been done in laboratories some of the experimental work on attention that's been done over the last 20 years or so and to try and apply it to these uh, to classroom settings and, and to see whether they they can give us any new information because it's not always a foregone conclusion actually that something that works in a lab will be any use at all in in the real world so what we took was what's called the, uh, an irrelevant distraction test and and that's a test uh, which uh, very simply just involves people looking uh, at letters being projected on a screen in, in a circle and all they have to say is whether the letter X or the letter N has appeared in that in that circle of letters sometimes that task is very easy because uh, the other letters so the non-target letters 
are, are just circles, so they're just O's, or sometimes they're just even dots. Uh, and that means the X or the N stands out very easily because it's an angular letter. But And we call that low perceptual load. Sometimes it's a lot more difficult because the other letters, we have five non-target letters, are also other angular letters, so K or M and those. And that makes it much harder to find whether there's an X or an N. So using this paradigm, what we can do then is every so often, as well as doing this task, we suddenly flash on an irrelevant distractor, something that is totally irrelevant to the task that you've been told to ignore. Uh, so in the sort of famous example, that can be a cartoon character, so it can be Pikachu or, or SpongeBob SquarePants. And we see what effect that distractor has on your performance compared to when that distractor is not there. Uh, and we can look at that both in the easy, the low load condition and in the more difficult, the high load condition. And what we tends to have been found is that distraction is reduced when you have higher perceptual load. So when the initial task is more difficult, more complicated, in this case, when there are other angular letters in the target, so it's harder to find where your target is, you don't process that distractor as much. The project I was presenting, interestingly, didn't find that in adolescence. It did find it in adults, but it didn't in adolescence. But the reasons why we think it didn't find that effect uh, were quite interesting because actually what that effect is looking for is just reaction times. The amount that the reaction times are affected in this uh, experiment is not the only way you can measure how much a distractor has had an effect. So the, the typical result, yeah. I'm going to try to, to yeah. reframe. I, I do sometimes teach this in my cognitive okay, yeah, class, yeah. so I'm sensitive to trying to describe all of these things without visuals sometimes. Yeah. So the typical effect, right, is just that for adults anyway, yeah. if they have a lot of extra things to look at, so they're really having to focus, maybe focus isn't a good word, yeah, but yeah, the yeah, idea, yeah, yeah. really having to focus, those extra distractors that pop in and out yeah. distract them less, yeah. but the task is overall more difficult. Yes. When the task is easier, it's, it's easy, but then those little things that pop up off to the side or up or down, yeah. Sometimes it's called the flanker, right? Yeah, but it's yeah, a flanker. Yeah, so yeah. I'm testing myself now. Um, they, those will sometimes distract them and slow them down relative to when it's not there. Exactly. exactly. But what you're saying is that with adolescence... We didn't find that when we just looked at their reaction times. Um, in fact, when we just looked at their reaction times, it looked like they'd been less distracted in those the, the low load, in those easy conditions where... There's, there's just one letter to see. Uh, so, so that was a real surprise because you would not expect adolescents to be less distracted than adults. You'd think that adolescents would be kind of distracted all the time. Yeah, and at the very least you'd expect them to be the same and the, yeah, there's plenty of reasons why they could be much more. Um, but what, what we actually found was that adolescents are responding in a totally different way to adults. So they are not just uh, having an effect on their reaction times, there is an effect on their errors. They're making more errors and also they're, they're responding in, in a completely different way. So we had to find a whole new way to analyze ad, the adolescent data, uh, which took into account both these some effects on reaction time, but also error rates, and the fact that their data and the way their reaction times are distributed just, just look different to, to the adults. So, so we had to sort of create new scores, and I think in one of the this it was a good lesson for people trying to apply things into classrooms, is we have to be aware that the way we might have done things in an experimental setting may not always work in, in, in a classroom setting and we have to adapt so we had to find a whole new scoring technique and when we did do that 
uh, we found some quite interesting results. So th the way that this worked was that we had uh, 190 children in a secondary school from year seven up to year 12. And they uh, came out of a school lesson, totally normal school lesson, and they completed our experiment. But they also gave us a self-report of their levels of distraction in that previous lesson. So uh, how much they've been distracted and also the sorts of things that had distracted them. So we gave them options such as uh, other people around them, social networking, um, displays in the classroom, mind wandering and so on. And, and what we found was that actually once we'd got our, our measurement sorted, the, this measurement that combines the reaction times and, uh, and error rates, we could predict how distracted they reported being in their last school lesson from their performance on our experiment. And this prediction uh, held even when we controlled for, for the sorts of tasks they were doing in the, in the lessons, so whether they were on a computer or not, how well they felt, and also how interested they were in the lesson, which obviously would be a major factor in how, probably how distracted they were. So even controlling for all these things, we were able to predict their levels of distraction from the, their reports of how distracted they've been in the lesson using this experimental task. So how, how could how might teachers use this or where where do you want yeah. this to go? I know it's probably not ready. So no, it, what we need to do is we need to understand a lot more about what we are, what we're tapping into here, whether we're tapping into just a way of measuring the sort of that student's uh, transient state of being a bit distracted at that time. Uh, there, there's some evidence that suggests that this test could uh, help um, or, or could illustrate actually a more kind of stable trait, so just how distractible you are in general, um, and and so that would be that would be really interesting. And I think it could be very valuable for schools to have an idea of the distractibility of their students. However, you you know having having been a teacher and, and knowing that it's very easy for very well-meaning and, and, and sort of nice academic interventions to kind of metamorphosize into something terrible that is a real burden on teachers. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'd certainly, I'd be very cautious about that being used at the moment. I, I see it potentially being really useful if teachers have an idea of the distractibility levels of their students, um, then that's something that a bit like a CAT score can be used in terms of progress or just planning potential interventions. But, but it, it would be awful if it became something where uh, either it was being used for, I don't know, performance management or they were having to create different lesson plans according to people in different categories. So it needs, it needs a lot more research. Uh, and also, really, it would be really good to use it repeatedly. So we really don't know how, anything about how, these th how attention varies within children. Yeah, because I imagine, you know, even just whether or not they had breakfast that morning or how, you know, how much sleep they got could yeah. affect them. In the long run, sure, but also just for that day, both in the lesson and the task. Yeah, so, so all of these things are likely to have, have an effect. Um, but the, the difficulty is that the more variables you try and take into account, the larger the sample size you need to be able to sort of tease out all of those individual effects. Uh, so if it would be fantastic to have a really large scale project and there are possibilities and I'm looking at hopefully being able to work with um, a, a homework website which would allow a much access to a much larger sort of sample size and we could maybe do that whilst uh, you know in terms of students home environments and, and look at individual distractions there that would be fascinating uh, it would be more difficult to do in the classroom uh, you'd need a lot of people you'd need a lot of funding behind it uh, but but it's something that definitely I think would be really valuable. 
Yeah, we know all about that. <laughs> we we talk a bit about, you know, the lab to classroom model. We've yeah. talked about that on this podcast, too, just I think in the very first episode that we did about, you know, starting with these lab-based tasks, and they're not as realistic, mm-hmm. right? But they give us information, and we can control everything or many things and determine cause and effect. And then when we take it into the classroom, when we have all that, all that money and we've got, you know, a, an audience and we're trying, you know, we're taking time, in the day it's useful work but mm-hmm. we're, we're we pretty much know what we're doing or we we know what we're talking about by then we're not just randomly testing in the classroom yeah. i think that's important yeah so it gives you it gives you the good bets to then take into the classroom and then you know to evaluate from there right yep and then keep going back and forth yeah and, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i mean actually just to, just to follow on from that I, I think something i often find quite uh, surprising about people who with the the attempt to sort of use neuroscience in education and some of the objections to that is that people are expecting it to to lead to something really new mm-hmm. uh, and I that would it would be really surprising to me if it led to anything new because education has been around for 3,000 years and there's a lot of things have been tried and you know most of most of those ideas uh, we have a reasonable idea of the sort of way it works so far more effective is to use it as as a sort of as a buffer you know as a way of kind of constraining the theories and checking that the theories that are out there do they make sense and that's a sort of quite a humble aspiration to use the science but I think it's it's much more likely to be effective than sort of redesigning everything yeah well and the new thing in in a way is sort of and it works in the classroom and it applies right yeah I can really identify with what you're saying about hating the idea that this additional measure would now be something that either teachers or students would be evaluated upon or that would have to be in some spreadsheet. I know that we have similar concerns about you know, the use of effective study strategies and teaching yeah. strategies. We, of course, love talking to teachers and students about them, but we wouldn't want there to be some kind of form where, yeah. you know, teachers would have to fill out, yes, I use retrieval practice, <laughs> concrete examples, and interleaving all in one lesson, and yeah. so therefore I get a good evaluation. Yeah because of course it's about how you use them and using them well rather than just checking those boxes. Yeah. Haphazard use isn't going to lead to much and then it then there might be frustration and mm-hmm. rightfully so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So based on your work, if mm-hmm. you had if you were to give me sort of one thing that is applied that teachers or maybe students and parents could take away, just sort of the overarching message, what would that be? So I think the, I suppose for students and teachers, it'd be slightly, slightly different things. But uh, if, if I was going to, okay, let's do one overall thing. The one overall thing is, I think, uh, an important takeaway from a lot of this research is that attention, we tend to think of attention as just a sort of resource that you either have or you don't have. And actually, although that's obviously true to an extent, I'm not sure it's that helpful and there's a lot of things that actually environmentally affect uh, attention uh, you know I said perceptual load but also your your level of working memory or cognitive load and, and lots all the environmental things going on around you and all of these things and and the research is really clear that that environmental influences on attention are, are huge and what that means is there's enormous potential to actually improve attention with some really minor potentially very low level, very sort of humble tweak. So that that means probably having your phone off and out of the way when you're doing work. It means uh, it, it means sort of 
occasionally uh, maybe not listening to music with lots of lyrics in it means working in a place where your brother and sister aren't having an argument it means in just very simple things like this I, I, but but sort of seeing attention as actually something that you can causally impact rather than just seeing it as oh well I didn't feel I couldn't pay attention today I, I think that's really important and then in terms of, sort of what that means that means slightly different things I think for teachers and for students it, for, for students it means you just need to try and get a working environment where you've minimized all of those distractions uh, and something I would love to research although it's not part of this project is is how you can maybe build that into a routine you have a sort of thinking routine and a habitual routine where you know where things are and and therefore, there's just there's no sort of you know cognitive load in thinking where did I put the dictionary because the dictionary is always in that place. And I, I think we've talked about that a little bit in the context of trying to get to sleep right. and yes. associations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know if you associate your bed with sleep and not say working on your computer or watching TV, yeah. then you know those those cues are going to be present for sleeping, but yeah. not when you're laying down, you're thinking, oh, I want to watch yeah. TV. And so yeah. the same could be said for workspace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and sleep is obviously another huge thing for, for attention. I think there's a there's a sort of ticking time bomb of, of sleep deprivation that, that we're slightly in denial of probably. Uh, and then in terms of sort of for, for teachers, as well as those, those common sense things, I think the, the re, that research on attention really encourages you to think what actually do I want to focus attention on um, so a lot of teacher training is about capturing attention but it's not about really deciding what you want to focus the attention on so I think back to my sort of first powerpoints when I was teaching and uh, you know I'd have a funny image next to what I wanted them to to read and or a moving gif if I was feeling really creative and, and now knowing about sort of split attention these sorts of things I, that was I was completely counterproductive and and that sort of focus on really thinking what is the information I absolutely want attention to be on and how do I focus attention on it goes right from one PowerPoint slide to whole sort of curricular levels of thinking what is the most important piece of information. Yeah, you know, it's, it's tricky. An image can help in the sense of dual yeah, coding exactly. if, yeah. if the image is contributing to those words. It can hurt if it's not or if it's extraneous or even if it's related but it's not conveying new or useful information or the whole idea yeah. um, and, and so it's a real art form and, and a, you know, from a perceptual load idea you know, you, dual coding is going to be likely to sort of fill your perceptual capacity more so that should be great for avoiding distraction as long as those sources of information are complementary and it, so, so you don't overload yeah absolutely don't have too much don't have too little yeah, so that's that's great. Um, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. We haven't had the opportunity to talk about attention as much on the podcast, so this is this is really great. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. The Learning Scientist Podcast is funded by the Wellcome Trust.